entering in, into a new series beginning today that I want to tell you about. Uh, a long time ago, there was a man who had everything in life. He was wealthy, he was healthy, and he had a large family. Everything was going well. Everything that could go well was going well. In fact, everything that he did in his life, he put Jesus he put God at the center of his life. He, he gave God credit for every single blessing in his life. Until one day, his tank didn't just run empty, but it was impaled from underneath, seemingly overnight. On one day, he got four gut-wrenching news uh, uh, brought to him by messengers. And the, the, the four different messengers just came back to back on each other's heels of just blow after blow after tragedy after tragedy. The worst one being the fourth one who simply said this. He said, uh, uh, um, Job, I've come to tell you that all of your children were partying in one location when a tornado came out of nowhere, wiped out the entire house. All of the servants and every one of your children are dead. The, the, the question that I've got to ask, because it, Job went from rich to poor in just a matter of minutes. And the question that I would have to ask is, when life's been so harsh and you can't take any more, where do you find hope? Like when you feel like you've been gut punched in life, when you feel like giving up, where do you find hope? What do you do when it feels like God has given up on you? I can remember my wife and I went through a great grief season, something of the essence that Job went through back in 2010. And it was 13 years ago that um, we, we so were excited that we got to start our family young and, and we had our first child and, and Bella was just such a gift. We named her Bella, which means beautiful because I've always called my wife beautiful from the first moment I've seen her. And so we named her beautiful and then we said, come on, it's time to grow our family. We wanted two, three was debatable. It all depended on if I got a boy after the girl. Come on, she was like, we done after two. I said, let's talk, baby, after two right until we found out after years of nothing happening the professionals wanted to see us and we both tested perfectly functional but then they gave us this diagnosis it was they told us it was a professional diagnosis it was the diagnosis of undiagnosed infertility I thought well that's crap that's a terrible diagnosis it sounds like the professionals go, we don't know what's going on. We gave up. So we're calling it a, an official diagnosis. I said, well, what does it mean? We've already had one child. Why does it, it, certainly we should be able to have a second. And we went through five years of undiagnosed infertility, not understanding what was going on. Maybe two years, the, the specialist said you have a 0.01% chance of getting pregnant again without our help. It's, it, there, there's, it's impossible. Until one day my wife showed up pregnant, only to find out a month later that we miscarried early on. It was one of the most difficult seasons. I remember having conversations with God, like, God, I'm over here trying to serve you. I'm trying to live righteous. 
Why have you forsaken me? Why, why do you not see our heart? Where are you at, God? Why are other people who aren't living for you able to pop them out like vending machines, but we are trying to walk with you and want to raise a child in your ways, and we can't seem to make this thing work? What do you do when it feels like God has given up on you? You know, Job felt this way, we felt this way, and there's a lot of people who might feel this way today. In our world today, there's a lot of grief in our culture. There's an underlying anguish that surfaces unexpectedly from our souls. It, it, it's from a number of years of tragedy and hard times and difficult news and difficult circumstances. And, 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 and it appears out of nowhere and it overwhelms. It doesn't even ask permission. It just shows up. It doesn't matter if it's from the loss of a loved one or the heaviness of life or the weight of the news, or work, life is just difficult to say the least. The school system seems to have lost its way. My relationships falling apart. My kids never listen. What do you do when it feels like God has given up on you? Now, your grief, my grief, and Job's grief are just unwelcome seasons of empty tanks. We've all gone through them before. If you're not in that season, praise God, but you know what I'm talking about because life has a way of being difficult, and like I said, it doesn't ask when's a good time for you. And so um, uh, uh, life can feel unfair at times. It can feel like it's over. You can feel like giving up. You can even start to hold an offense towards God. I know that I almost felt a sense of injustice from God. God, here we are trying to grow a ministry here and reach people for the kingdom of God. And while I will not stop, I do not understand where you are at. Why are you not moving in my behalf? Has anybody been there today? Come on, when someone's run empty, here's our big question. How do you refuel and find life again? Well, to answer that, I want to tell you the story about one more man whose life seemingly ran empty way too early. He was about a 33-year-old man who had lived his entire life serving other people. He, he saw the poor. He connected with the isolated he healed the, the, the broken. He, he, he restored the hurting. He spoke life to the isolated. He affirmed the downcast. He gave purpose to those who were lost. He fed the hungry. He even raised dead children to life just to please another mother. Another mother. And why would anyone want this kind of person to die? And yet... He was sentenced to death through crucifixion. Crucifixion was not an honorable, quiet, discreet sentencing of death. It was the most public, public humiliating, agonizing death sentence we have ever created in all of human history. It was the worst of the worst times that you could be sentenced to death by crucifixion. It was done in public. It was done not to be quick, but to be long, agonizing, and for you to suffer. And not suffer privately, but suffer publicly for everyone to see this is what will happen to anyone who crosses the Roman way. 
It was a statement piece. It was a way to make you and I stay in line, follow the system, do as you're told. And he was, suffer he was sentenced to die a death for a crime he never committed. He went through three sham trials made up in the middle of the night that were speedily made just to push him through, the through a death sentence so that he could inevitably be stripped down, beaten 39 times with a whip that had lead tips on it. 39 times because the Romans decided that 40 times would kill you. You would die from how much pain it is. So it was like extra strength Tylenol. Let's figure out how much we, we, you could take that would kill you and then back it off just a little bit. So they hit him 39 times. They whipped him. Then they put a scarlet, a, a, a purple royal robe on him, which you might think they turned the corner to honor him. That was so that all the blood would sink into the cloth so that when they rip it off at the cross, he would once again feel pain. He was spat on. He was yelled at the most intense things that humans could think to yell at each other. He, was, he had to carry his own cross up a mountain called Skull Mountain. He was nailed to it through his hands and his feet, lifted up for all to watch him and judge him, and he was left to suffer and die for a crime he never committed. Three hours after hanging there, he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to say, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Can you feel it for just a moment? He used the same cry I used just a few years ago. He used the same cry Job used throughout the book of Job. He used the same cry many of you admitted to saying, I have felt like God's given up on me. And why would God say that? Why would Jesus say that so that you can listen to this, feel this today? So that you realize that Jesus identified with all of us who feel like God has given up on you. Jesus took a moment to speak only a few words and he selected them purposely. And one of them he spoke at his last breath was to say, have you felt that way? Have you felt that way? Have you felt that way? Have you felt that way like God's given up on you? I'm going through for everyone who feels like God has given up on you. See, you got to understand this, that as he breathed his last breath, they took him down from the cross and they put him in a tomb that was supposed to seal his life, shut him up for good, and also seal his story. Praise God, that's behind us. Don't have to deal with another person like that again. What a wild lunatic. What a wild story. What a wild accusation. He thought he was the son of God. Now we've got him all sealed up. But I need to tell you today that they couldn't seal his fate and his story. That the grave wasn't the end of his story. And if it's not the end of his story, I got some good news for you and I today. It doesn't have to be the end of Job's story, your story, or my story. Let me tell you the story of all stories. Mark chapter 16 says, very early on Sunday morning. Come on, somebody say Sunday. Just at sunrise, Mary Magdalene, uh, 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 Mary, Jesus' mother, and Salome, three women, went to the tomb. And on the way, they were asking each other, 
who's going to roll a stone for, for us from the entrance to the tomb? That's a big old stone, and us ladies are not going to be able to push it away. But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, by the way, had already been rolled aside. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked. Come on. But the angel said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. You ain't going to find him here. You're not going to see him around dead things. He's already risen. Look. This is where they laid his body. Now go and tell his disciples. You better look at your neighbor and say, you better run and tell that. You better run and tell that. That the story that had at the seeming climax, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me, was not done yet. It did not end with a grave. It ended with resurrection life. Come on, tell your neighbor, God's not done yet. If you have gone through a season of an empty tank, I'm here to help you. God's not done yet. He is not through with you. The grave doesn't get the last word. See, listen, the grave is really just a looming, ominous presence that seems to call out sometimes in our own souls saying, you're through. We're done with you. You'll never recover from this. You might as well hang it up. There is no hope. You're never coming back from this one. You screwed up too bad. Nothing in your future is bright. It's all downhill from here. But I'm here to tell you that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the grave doesn't get the last word. Resurrection life gets the last word. So I'm here to tell you that wasn't the end of Jesus' story and it wasn't the end of mine. 2010, we got the devastating news that we could, for whatever reason, no longer have a, a child by our own means. And so we saw a fertility doctor who said, I am your God now. I said, excuse me? <laughs> Sorry, did I just hear you right? Come on, I, got, I, I get wax in my ear sometimes. Hold on one second. Let me feel it. Okay, say that again in my good ear. He said, I'm just saying you got a 0.01% chance of ever having a baby on your own. Basically, I am your only version of God. And I said, listen, listen, my God can do it with your help or without your help. Okay, and so I, 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 no shame on anyone who's chosen to proceed with that, but because of his words to us, we knew this ain't the way for us. Can I tell you the end of our grave story? Can I tell you the end of our grief story that just a few years later, the Lord opened up our hearts to adoption, and we started realizing there was a child of God who needed mothers and fathers and sisters and maybe brothers. We ain't got no brothers in our house. Come on, listen. Just girls running around. Estrogen zone in my house okay so listen and and we said there, there's a child that God wants us to care for and guess what God showed us a seven-month-old woman who said I want to carry my child to term but then I need her to be raised in a Christian home and we thank God for that woman who carried her child to term and did not end it early and come on the moment our second girl was born my wife was the first one to hold her and we named our child, our second girl, uh, Mia, which means beloved, wished-for child. And we said, God, you have brought life out of a difficult situation. Now, 
being the helpful husband that I try to be. I don't get it right all the time, but this night I was, praise God, because I tell the story a few times. I'm just downstairs washing baby bottles, just trying to do my deed at the end of the night, try to be helpful, try to be, be, be helpful, and then um, my wife yells at me, run upstairs quick. Now, normally that means something's wrong, so I ain't even put the baby bottle down. I got I got dish soap, uh, a brush in one hand, baby bottle in the other. I run upstairs. I look like a fool. My wife's got it all on video. Well, what's the matter? What's the matter? And she says, look at our second girl who's wearing a onesie that says, I'm a big sister. I said, whoa, my wife's been surfing more adoption sites and hasn't even told me. Who are we adopting this time? I was like, come on. I thought we'd have a conversation about this thing. I was like, okay, I can wrap my mind around it, but like, you had to do it like this, and she looks at me. Uh, I think what she was saying with her eyes was, no, you idiot, but no, it was more graceful, and she went, I know that. And our third child, nine months after we adopted our second child, our third child came completely unexpected, completely natural, completely a gift from God. We named her Gianna, which is the meaning graced by God. Come on. It wasn't the end of our story. Our diagnosis, though it sounded like death in a grave, it wasn't the end of the story. Can I tell you the end of Job's story? Because that wasn't the end of Job's story. Having four things punch him in the gut in just one day. The Bible says in the book of Job, chapter 42, the last book of the Bible, it tells us the end of Job's story. And I'm going to tell you the rest of his story for the next four weeks together. But listen to this. It says, so the Lord blessed Job in the second half of his life even more than in the beginning. Come on, it goes on to say that God doubled the wealth of his businesses. He also gave Job seven more sons and three more daughters. Job lived to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. That was a happy, happy old man. Come on, you know what I'm talking about if you got grandchildren up in here. Go ahead and testify. I've heard, I've heard people say, if I knew grandchildren were this fun, I would have had them first. Come on. Anyway, Job lived to see four generations of his children and grandchildren. Then he died, an old man who had lived a long, full life. Anybody want full life? You might be going through an empty tank season, but I'm here to tell you it is only by the hand of God that we can go from empty to full. And come on, God wants to do that over the next four weeks. You are already in a five-week series called Running on Empty. Look at your neighbor and say, congratulations, you made through one-fifth of it. Come on, tell the other neighbor, well, we might as well finish it then. (laughs) In week two... Next week, I want to answer the question many of you have asked. How can a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? And I'm going to preach a message I'm calling from pain to purpose. Two weeks from now in week three, I'm going to talk about living with integrity in the empty seasons of life. In week four, three weeks from now, I'm going to talk about developing a functional faith that will bring fulfillment in your life. You're going to get your joy back. You're going to get your fulfillment back. And in the fifth week, I'm going to talk about wisdom for the worn out. Come on. If you're in an empty tank season or you know someone on an empty tank season, you might as well finish what you already started and join us the next four weeks without missing because it will bless you, but it will also bless your kids too. We need to be in the house of God, learning the things about God. Because if you hadn't noticed, online church doesn't work for kids at home. And the next generation needs to hear the story of all stories. 
It doesn't end with the death in the grave, but it ends when someone comes from empty to full. And so you'll have to come back to hear how to get from empty to full. But let me leave you with just one nugget to hold you over for the rest of this week. Job said this in the middle of his grief season. It's a one-liner that I believe that you should either take a picture of or write it down in your notebook today. He says in Job chapter 19, verse 25, I've gone through a lot, but as for me, I know. Somebody say no. I know that my Redeemer, say the last word with me, lives. I know my Redeemer lives. He's not dead. God's not dead. He's not in a tomb. He's not six feet under. I feel something shaking. Come on. Because I know in all of my heart that my Redeemer lives. Job knew it. I know it. And I want to convince you to know it too. And so if you're wondering or wandering, I just want to say welcome home. Come on a journey with us for the next four weeks. But in your heart, when you start to know my Redeemer lives, then you know this truth is true too. And you could write this down. No matter the present, I know my future. No matter the present, I know my future. And it doesn't end in despair. It doesn't end in death. It doesn't get sealed up, covered up, buried, and, and, and run over. I know my Redeemer lives. And if he did it in himself, if he did it in Job, if he did it in me, he's going to do it in you too. So the same God who redeemed our story, Job's story, Jesus' story, is the same God who wants to redeem your story too. He specializes in restoration. He specializes in giving purpose to the people who are wandering, and he wants to do it for your life too. In fact, let me tell you one more story before I close today. It's the story, it's a modern day story of Jesus' resurrection life that he can do in any Job situation. Would you just watch this as you see what God can do? Growing up, the need to feel safe and loved was always nearby. Born and raised in the projects of Camden, New Jersey, Drugs and crime were everywhere. My environment wasn't nurturing, but I always had basic needs met. I never went hungry, always had clean clothes in the house, but I was never told how much I was loved or that I could be anything I wanted to be. There were no hugs, there were no kisses, there was only abuse in every form. My world was dark. I was in a constant state of depression. I became angry and mean. I couldn't communicate well and often made the decision not to. Looking back, all I remember is that we were disciplined in some of the harshest ways imaginable. Yelling, screaming, cussing, and throwing items were a norm in my household. We were spoken to in the nastiest terms. It wasn't uncommon to be referred to as a female dog, a slut, a hoe, or other demeaning words. My mother would discipline us with whatever was close, extension cords, brushes, brooms, anything she could find to harm us. I remember a time my teacher told my mother I was disrespectful to her. My mother never asked what happened, what the situation was, or if it was true. She picked me up from school, took me home, and locked me in a room so I couldn't run. I was terrified and decided I, I would rather jump out of a window than to be disciplined once again. 
so I jump out of a two-story window to escape the physical abuse. Living with an alcoholic stepfather didn't help my situation either. He was in a constant state of intoxication and the leader of the ugly words we were called. In middle school, he started to sexually abuse me. He would tell me that no one would believe me, that no one would listen to a child. He told me we would never survive without his income. I believed every word he said. I was terrified that my mother would hate me more than she already did. I never thought about telling anyone because I was so afraid. Not opening up about the abuse made me become a mean, evil, and angry person. I trusted no one and felt alone all the time. Before I entered high school, my world got even darker. I decided to attempt suicide for the second time. I found a bottle of 100 count, 200 milligram ibuprofen. I took all 100 pills. It didn't work. I was disappointed that I was still alive. Six feet beneath the earth For all the things I've done The things I've said Choices made that I regret Oh, I would still be school, I felt like life changed in the biggest way. I moved away to Maryland for college and immediately felt a level of freedom and safety. I gave my life to Christ in September of 1998. I didn't grow up in church. We went to church occasionally, but I didn't know anything about a personal relationship with God. I didn't know about this God, this Savior, who would lavish his love on me who didn't care about my shame, my stains. One would think life would start being great, but I soon experienced the type of abuse I didn't know was possible, spiritual abuse. We had leaders who were controlling and manipulating. They used our desire to please God to their advantage. Our leaders took the place of God and made us feel like we were a failure to God if we didn't obey them. Most of us came from trauma and broken families with a lot of baggage. We lacked love and feelings of closeness that was used to manipulate us. If we felt like God had spoken to us, we had to feel that through our leaders. If we wanted to go in a certain direction, but they disagreed, it was forbidden to choose another way. We weren't allowed to date or have any interaction with the opposite sex unless they approved it. When we began to grow in Christ and see the mess we were in, we were silenced from speaking the truth. I recognized that the relationship I had with my spiritual mother mirrored the relationship I had with my birth mother. I tried in so many ways to please her and be the perfect daughter. I wanted to be loved and accepted. I was again so lost. I rebelled for a short period, picked up an old habit of smoking, and really I decided I would make my own decisions. Oh, but for the grace of God, the Lord never left me. As a matter of fact, he was closer than I thought. What I learned most is that God is love. His goodness and mercy 
is the love that saved my life.
the blood of Jesus. And I need to tell you today that what he did on Good Friday, he had you in mind. I told you at the beginning, if God has a refrigerator, he's got your picture on it. One of the reasons I know that is because Jesus would have done it just for you. He's in love with us. And, and, and though we have mistakes, though we have all have sin in our life, the Bible says we all have sin in our life, yet he is in love with us. And he knew something had to be done about it. And so Jesus, the Son of God, said, I will become the sin that they have done so that through my innocence, I will pay the price of a guilty person so that all who are guilty can be made innocent again. That's the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come on, this isn't just a story that we listen to and move on. It's a story that captures us in our heart and changes the direction of our life. And just for a minute, I'd like to pray a prayer over every single person in this room. It's actually a prayer that was written about us in Ephesians chapter 3. If you would just open your hands, close your eyes, I want to read this prayer over you and bless you before we go. I ask God to strengthen you by His Spirit. Not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength. That Jesus will live in you as you open the door and invite Him in. And I ask Him that with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all followers of Jesus the extravagant dimension of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breath. Test its length. Plumb the depths. Rise to the heights. Live full lives, full in the fullness of God. And Father, I pray over every one of your people. That full life is what you died to give us. Abundant life, Father God. For everyone whose tank has run on empty, I pray resurrection life, restoration, redemption, purpose. In Jesus' name I pray. Receive that today. It's all different because of Jesus' blood and what he's done. And with every head still bowed, every eye still closed, before we leave this place, I want to invite each one of you to have a personal relationship with Jesus. I made it to Easter services like this and I thought it was just something that you do in the flow of a day because I am a Christian. But what I did not realize is it wasn't meant for history's sake. It wasn't meant to give you and I something to do for about an hour on a Sunday once or twice a year. It was done out of love for you personally. God wants a personal relationship with you and sin gets in the way of that. So today, if you realize I've got sin in my life, I've done some things I'm not proud of today. Every head is still bowed, every eye is still closed. I will not call you forward and I will not embarrass you. But I don't want you to stay in a grave today. I don't want you to stay in grief today, shame or guilt or condemnation. I want you to receive the freedom of coming out the grave by simply putting your faith in Jesus Christ to cover up your sins and make you new today. If that's you in this place, don't hesitate. Just throw your hand up in the air real quick, as high as you can, and you can put it right back, back down. You say, Pastor Drew, pray for me. I'm giving my life to him. I've, I've messed up, and I want to repent today. I want to do a new start. I've seen your hands. Come on. I've seen hands, even online. If that's you, all it takes is a measure of faith that you say, Jesus, I want to make you my Lord and Savior today. I repent of my sins, and I ask you to let me start all over again. Come on. Anybody else? 
say, Pastor Drew, I should have raised my hand. Well, come on. I'm so proud of the hands I saw today. And we're about to pray a prayer together as a church. So I'm going to ask everybody to pray it out loud with people who raise their hand. But listen to me. I can help you with the words to say, but I can't make you believe it. And Romans 10, 9 says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. So you got to do the believing as you do the saying. Come on, church. Everybody repeat after me. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. Oh, I know I have sinned. I have fallen short. I've screwed up so many times. And I know I hurt you in the process. Please forgive me, Lord. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. And when he died on that cross, he died to set me free. I get a new start now. My old is gone. My new has come because of what Jesus did on the cross. Now help me live for you. You are my Lord. You are my Savior. In Jesus' name I pray.